We are in the middle of our readings of chapter number two, where Patanjali essentially talks about the yoga practice, the yogic practice. It is called Sadhana Pada, the chapter on Sadhana. We have read the first, we read the first 15 sutras, and we have seen that Patanjali has introduced the concept of kleshas, the impurities of the mind, and has shown how these kleshas are related to karma, and has said a lot of things about the manifestations of karma. In our last reading, last time, we have seen that Patanjali has had a couple of very sharp sutras, very merciless sutras, in which he pointed exactly in which ways the goings and comings of karma are. Now we are going to the sutra number 16, which is a conclusion of the sayings of Patanjali, and which is one of the brilliant sutras from the Yoga Sutra, one of the most outstanding <coughs> in the chapter number 2, which denotes so many philosophical aspects. And Patanjali said in the sutra number 15, that everything seems to be painful, pain, and uh, this is because he was expressing this Vedantic attitude, this separating attitude, and then taking over this idea of suffering, which is an idea obsessive for Buddha, how to stop the suffering of the world, how to put an end to the suffering. <coughs> Patanjali tells us wonderful something wonderful. In the Sutra number 16, he says, the suffering which has not yet come, can and should be avoided. <coughs> Briefly we translate it, the suffering yet to come shall be avoided. This is a wonderful Sutra, because it is a Sutra which has several parallel meanings, and uh, if we continue it in a very linear way from everything which Patanjali has said until now. Patanjali has said, well, uh, the suffering is produced by negative karma, negative karma is produced by the kleshas, by the impurities of the mind, and the suffering which has not yet come can and should be avoided. Basically, the first simplistic interpretation is this. <coughs> The first a clear interpretation is you have the capacity of not creating any more negative karma and therefore the suffering of the future you can deal with it. It's like you can deal only with the karma which is already here. It is not to create any future karma. That's quite obvious. That is the simple interpretation of the great sages who claimed or who wished to be able to stop the chain of karma. Okay, whatever karma we have until now, what can we do about it? Nothing. It is there. It will have to be consumed sooner or later. But we can consume the karma which is yet to come in the meaning that we are not going to produce any more suffering. We are not going to produce any more suffering because we will not produce any more karma and we will not produce any more karma because we are going to deal with the kleshas 
we are going to purify the mind of these miseries, of these impurities, of the residues of these samskaras. <coughs> this is a pretty uh, partial interpretation and a bit depressive. It simply says, well, we can make sure that from today on, we are not going or we should not create any more negative karma. How? By paying attention to the five impurities of the mind, we should meditate upon them, we should not let them manifest, we should not act in the name of those five impurities of the mind, which we have analyzed already, and therefore we are not going to build negative karma, which we saw it comes directly from those. On the other hand, this is a partial interpretation, as I have already said, because <clears throat> this doesn't give an answer to, hey, what are we going to do with the karma which comes, or with the karma which already exists there. It's like, I have to sit and undergo that karma like a victim. But funny, the mentality of Patanjali in particular, and the mentality of the yogis in general, has not been proven to be fatalistic at all. So there must be a deeper layer here. Patanjali is not only telling to us, through what I have taught you until now, stop producing negative karma in the future, and therefore the suffering from the future should be avoided. It's not a complete meaning. And that is why we have to look at a deeper meaning of it. Of course, a halfway deeper meaning would be the following. Wait a second. By this, Patanjali tells us also that the karma which comes to be fulfilled is automatically tending to produce new karma. This is one of the big things which people do not understand about karma, that karma is prompting people to cause more karma. For example, if a dog is wounded and you try to take care of the dog, the dog is biting you in its agony, in its fear, in its fury, in its confusion. Therefore, the human being does the same. A human being who is suffering, instead of putting the head down and humbly suffering and saying, that's it, I'm paying for the karma from my previous life, is trying to pull other people in suffering. If I suffer, let the whole universe suffer because I suffer. Somebody who is physically in pain, tries to make a lot of fuss, to call a lot of attention upon themselves, so that they should be paid a lot of attention, and that other people will have their life turned into a nightmare. There are people who, when they suffer, they suffer with dignity. We say they die like elephants. You know, when elephants want to die, they just separate from the herd, and they go to the elephant graveyard. It's like the elephant is an animal which has nobleness. It has dignity. The, the elephant, when it dies, it goes to die alone. It doesn't go to, it doesn't, it's not going to drag the whole herd, hey, wait for me, I'm dying, pay some attention to me. It's kind of having this nobleness, this dignity, which is coming from, that's where the symbolism of the elephant is related to Vishuddha chakra, that it is kind of living its own agony. In the same way, a human being who would have an arousing of Vishuddha chakra or some higher chakra, even on Anahata, this would be partly valid, such a human being, if they would be in pain, physical pain or emotional pain, they would try not to disturb the other people with their pain. 
they will try to consume it by themselves. If I'm in pain, why should I give to other people pain? For example, when the 16th Karmapa died of cancer in Chicago, everybody knew that this man had to be in great pain. And yet he was smiling all the time, and he was asking the doctor, when the doctor was coming to visit him, he was asking him, hi, how are you, and what is it today, are you okay? And the doctor was amazed. It's like, this guy is dying of cancer, and he gives me consultation. He's asking me, how am I, if I have any problem, if he can help me with something. For God's sake, you are the one dying with cancer, and you are asking me if you can do something for me. This is a nobleness. This is anahata, vishuddha, higher levels of consciousness already, when the human being does not want to pollute the others with their own suffering. It's not because Karmapa was an escapist, an unaware person who was trying to evade the problem. Karmapa knew very well what was there, but he did not like this passing of pain in this way. And that is why, unfortunately, the story with the karma is like this. If I am wounded, instead of sitting quiet, I am bouncing back, I am fighting back. If I suffer, then I say something stupid to my friend, and my friend suffers. And people say, why did you offend him so much? And I'm saying, I don't know, I was so much in pain, I didn't know. It's like if I suffer, I'm spreading poison and shit all over mankind, producing suffering to other people, inconsiderately. Like when people ask me, why did you do that? I say, well, it was hurting me too much. That is not what Patanjali says. Patanjali says, if you have, the, the second interpretation is this, if you are having still some negative karma to pay, Make sure that this negative karma doesn't push you to some stupid things in which you should create some new one. Because when you will be in agony, you will start reacting stupidly. I am dissatisfied emotionally because I don't manage to have a fulfilling love relationship. And I start gossiping and hacking at all the other people who have. I start gossiping, I start intriguing, I start doing all kinds of shitty things. And it's like, if I'm... Because if I am having a bad emotional karma and my relationships suck and I suffer emotionally, I should try to make as many people around me happy. Even though my emotional life is a misery, I am trying to create some positive karma. So if, for example, I see two of my friends that they have a relationship problem, I'm trying to help them. Uh, How could I help you get in a better relationship with her? How could I help her get in a better relationship with you? Maybe I can act as an in-between. Maybe I'm going to her and telling her, do you actually know how much Walter loves you? It's true, maybe you have a problem, but you know he told me once that he loves you very much. And I'm trying to mend it. I'm trying to help them. And after I'm going and talk to her, I'm going to Walter. And I'm going to Walter and I'm saying, you know, she's loving you a lot, actually. You shouldn't give up so easily because, you know, there is a beautiful thing between you. I am encouraging all the time. And people say, what? You are having so much sorrow in your soul. And you still found resources to go and help Walter and his girlfriend? Yes, that's the beauty of it. That's the nobleness of it. I'm dying but I'm taking care of others at the same time because I want to create this beautiful karma. The negative of it is, I am unhappy, I become a sour person who 
gossips, likes to spread poison all the time, give only negative things to everybody. And when people ask me, why did you do that? My answer is, ah, you know, I am so frustrated. It's normal that I'm also giving negative things to other people because I am dissatisfied. Like if I'm full of poison, let the whole world have poison because I am in poison. That's the unfortunate thing with karma. Not only that negative karma is making us suffer, but negative karma makes us suffer and then we show bad character. That is why an old proverb says, people's character can be seen mostly in adversity. When a person is down, then you can see what kind of person that person is. Because if when a person is down, they still behave nice, then that person is a person of great nobleness and of great character. But if when a person is down in pain and others, they start doing all kinds of ugly things and making other people suffer around them, like feel guilty and other things, that that doesn't show too much nobleness of character. And that is why the second interpretation is that the suffering which is yet to come shall be avoided because, yes, you may have karma in the past, but make sure that in the agony which may come, if you still have some negative karma to pay, you shall not produce new one by looking very carefully at your kleshas and at the karmic acts which result from them. The third interpretation of this sutra is the deepest and the most yogic of them, and it contains in it two meanings as well. So there are two sub-meanings here. The first says, the suffering which is yet to come shall be averted, which simply says, you shall not accept fatalism. The suffering which is yet to come, like for example, I discover that I'm going to have cancer in my stomach. Patanjali says, it shall be avoided. Wait, 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 wait. Until now, in the first and the second interpretation, I understood if I'm having cancer in the stomach, it's because I did something earlier in my life, or I did something in my previous life, and therefore I deserve this cancer in the stomach. There's not much I can do about it, but at least I should be careful not to create any more shit. So after this cancer in the stomach, it should be like the lot thing, and after it at least I should be clean. This should be the final purification. But actually, Patanjali seems to say something else. He says, the suffering yet to come shall be averted. Therefore, relying on the understanding of karma, the mechanisms of karma, which he described in the previous sutras, and relying on the mechanism of how kleshas, impurities of this mind, create the karma, relying on them, you should eliminate the suffering of the future. Which simply says, if you interpret it from this standpoint, Patanjali says, even if you see you are going to get a cancer, you should not accept it. Even if you see you are going to get a bad emotional experience, you should not accept it. It can and shall be avoided. But wait a second. This means that Patanjali says that you can actually bend the karma. You can actually avoid that karma. Yes, that is what Patanjali says. That is the third and deepest level, the yogic level. Patanjali says, because else it would be like this. Look, I have become wise. I have been to a yoga course. 
My teacher explained to me about karma yoga, not to produce karma. I even heard correct comments to the yoga sutra. I have understood a lot of things and I understand whatever I have done until now, I'm sorry for that. I have been an ignorant, I have a backpack full of karma, only God knows how much of that is still left there. But at least I know that from now on I'm not going to produce any more karma, or I'm going to try to produce very little karma, and preferably only good karma. Good, but the problem is, what if I have in my backpack karma, which should suffice for 12 lifetimes? For example, if I have been a simple soldier in a battle, or done something, I might have killed 50 people. 50 murders is a karma which can go for 50 lives, because if I have killed 50 times, I will have to be killed 50 times. Therefore, every time when I'm killed, I just go to the next life. And therefore, it's like, wait a second. Patanjali says, don't create any more bad karma, just let the old one be consumed, and that's it. Wait a second. What if the karma which I already have, to, to be consumed, it takes 50 lives? Who can guarantee that in the next one, I shall still remember this book and this teaching? Who can guarantee that in 50 lives from now, I'm going to be so wise that then I will say, okay, now I have gone after those 50 lives of payday, of payment, and now I'm ready to continue because now my karma is about to be finished. And for the last 50 lives, I actually didn't produce any more karma because I was following the advice of Patanjali. That's utopian. And therefore, the point of Patanjali must be somewhere else. Because anybody who has more karma than a lifetime's worth to pay cannot use this advice of Patanjali because they say, what are you talking about? I'm just going to sit and not create any new karma, but I definitely am not going to see my purpose in this lifetime because I still have karma for ten lives to pay and uh, maybe, maybe in the next ten lives I'll be so wise as not to produce any more negative karma if I remember. And therefore, there must be it must be obvious that from a practical standpoint, Patanjali being a yogi and referring to the spiritual realization, he must actually say something else. And that something else is between the lines. You see how beautiful Patanjali doesn't say more than this, but how beautifully he camouflages it. That's why this is such an important sutra, because it has, as you can see by now, four meanings in parallel. The two simple meanings which refer, not don't produce any more karma one way or the other, and then the yogic meanings. And the yogic meanings simply say, Patanjali actually doesn't say, you shall not produce any more karma, so you should not have any more suffering in the future. Patanjali simply says, the suffering shall be avoided. Which simply says, whatever karma you have, Patanjali claims you can stop it from acting. And this is automatically taking us to the mysterious realm of the yogis dealing with karma. That the yogis are dealing with karma, and not only that they don't produce anymore, but they think that they can deal with the one from the past as well, if indeed you act from the level of Patanjali. This is a gift which is given to those men and women who manage to act at the level of Ajna Chakra. Only at the level of Ajna Chakra the things of Patanjali become possible, and that is why it is important to be able to work a little bit at that level. 
basically what Patanjali says here is the suffering yet to come is to be averted which means don't be passive and we have so many methods some of you who are in the advanced months they have learned already more about the methods to deal with here are some of the methods which work in the dealing with karma I'm not having the claim that in this commentary I'll make a complete survey because I should make a lecture or a cycle of lectures only on karma and its management but we are trying to sum up here as many methods as possible one such method is for example tapas, tapasya which I just commented to the beginners tonight which simply says hey you see that you are getting cancer in your liver do something for God's sake do Oshava diets do Dhyana Bandhas, do purifications, do Shankaprachalana, do this, do that, save the day. Yes, you will have to pull hard, because tapas, make, you need to clench your teeth, you need to shed some tears, maybe it's difficult. You have to get up and do your Dhyana Bandhas, even when you feel like you don't want to do them, and you still have to do it, because you, if not, you die by cancer. And therefore, you can pay the karma by tapas. Here is something which Patanjali would encourage. Patanjali says, the trouble yet to come can and shall be avoided. Don't sit like a lamb and wait for the knife to fall, for the butcher's knife to fall. Do something about it. That's why you have yoga. You have yoga to save yourself from suffering. It's a wise thing to do that. Then there would exist other ways of dealing with karma. Another way of dealing with karma is to compensate with good karma. If, for example, I'm having negative karma, physical or emotional, maybe I have time to do lots of good karma, which will annihilate it, which will pester it, which will compensate for it, and then automatically I'm out of the problem, because meanwhile I have paid my karma. What does that require? That requires only time. It requires time, because I need a postponement. It's exactly like I'm asking a bank, please give me two years and don't give me any more payments, because I need to redress myself and then I'll pay back what I have to pay. And what I'm asking is, give me a break, give me some time. It's very difficult to get a break in this universe, but sometimes you can get a brief reprieval, giving you time to do some things. A simple example is I'm having a violent karma and I'm not exposing myself to violence. I'm not going in places where I can be exposed to violence. I'm not driving a car. I'm not going on a bicycle or a motorbike in crowded places and stuff like this. I'm not dealing with circumstances where I can undergo violent accidents. And meanwhile, I'm trying to give as much physical good karma as possible. I learned something about chiropractic, I learned something about healing, I'm helping people with their physical karma, and then maybe if I pay, 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 pay for two years and help, 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 suddenly my violent karma seems to be over, because I had time to pay it. And therefore another way of dealing with karma, besides just waiting for the axe to fall, one of them was to do tapas, and the other one of them was to compensate, to do karma yoga, to do exactly the opposite. Like again, remember, and it's very difficult, most of us, because of egoism, we refuse to do that. Any one of you in this room declares themselves emotionally dissatisfied because you have very lousy relationships with the opposite sex. In this case, the thing, one of the things which you can do is take 
the finger out and don't stop looking in your own belly button and start helping other people to be emotionally happy, your friends, even when you are not, which simply means forget about yourself and try to make others happy, because in this way at least you will pay your negative karma. If you just sit with self-pity and saying, yeah, yeah, I want to make them happy, but what about me? Be patient. You, in three years, when you will finish paying that karma? In 30 years. We don't know when, because we don't know how much negative karma you have to start with. But sooner or later you will. This is like a test. It's exactly like God or the universe gives you a test. Let's see, will you put others before you? Will you be able to have this kind of spiritual abnegation to put others before you? Because it seems to be like an effort without end. Yeah, I'm sitting here and I'm still emotionally unhappy and I am trying to make all my friends happy. It's like I'm the most kind person in the world. Yes, that's exactly the way it is and that will transform you into a saint. That will indeed bring paradise. That is indeed what you have to do. That's a kind of a karma yoga and acting exactly with the opposite karma. But that's the tragedy. Persons who are emotionally unhappy, they become egoistic and grumpy and they don't want to help other persons because what about me? It's all the time their own belly button which matters most in their lives. And that is why this takes an effort. This takes a kind of faith you have to believe and you have to go there. Then there are methods of going even deeper. A method which is very unusual and which comes from Jesus. It is the method of repentance. It has been said that repentance, sincere repentance, together with prayer, they can forgive a lot of negative karma in a short while through the intervention of the divine consciousness. When you are dealing with karma, which is such a powerful enemy, because it's such a universal force, so subtle and so omnipresent, who can help you to fight with such an overwhelming enemy like karma? Only the universal consciousness. The universal consciousness, God if you prefer, can stand and wipe away your karma in a fraction of a second. Because from the standpoint of the divine almightiness, Karma is nothing. It's just another energy of the universe. And what for you seems to be very, very insurmountably difficult, for the divine consciousness is nothing. It's like it can be wiped out in a fraction of a second, as big as it is. And that is why another method is the method of the heart, of bhakti yoga, in which karma can be annihilated by resorting to someone or something which is above the karma itself. And finally, there exists the Tibetan type of method in which karma can be rationalized and it can be expelled through the process of learning. Those of you who ever did the metaphysical workshop will remember that there we explained very clearly that karma is an instrument of learning and evolution, developing, and therefore your karma, even the negative karma, which any one of you here or in this world may have, never represents an idea, a twisted idea of justice or some stupid idea of revenge, that God takes revenge or the universe takes revenge and you deserve it and therefore it's well deserved and you can't get away without it. 
in a universe in which the universal consciousness is experiencing solidarity with the condition of ignorance, limitation and pain of every soul, it is obvious that the universal consciousness, if it could, it would eliminate instantaneously pain. But it cannot, because each soul requires that pain as a learning instrument, as a feedback from nature. If you touch something hot and it burns you, you learn not to touch it anymore. It's a learning instrument and nobody is happy that you get burned in the process. And that is why the divine consciousness, which is much above this process of action and reaction, would be instantaneously happy to eliminate karma and its reactions with one condition, at one fundamental cost. If you already have learned your lesson, because karma is there to teach you a lesson. Even when you have committed 30 murders like Milarepa, the, kam the karma being a multiple murderer is there to teach you not to murder anymore. And it's your own lesson. It's not that God is sadistically saying, ha, I'm going to teach you a lesson. You will never kill again. No. The divine consciousness would want you to understand that in a fraction of a second and be beyond it. But when you are at such a level of consciousness, you cannot, you are blinded, you are full of revenge and hate and other things like these, and therefore you will never listen to one like Buddha or one like Jesus who says, hey, the wisdom is right here under your nose. You don't need to go through that valley of tears. You don't need to go through that wickedness and darkness. You just can stop right now. But people wouldn't stop. This is like the vendetta spirit. Karma is like a vendetta which goes on forever and ever and nobody would stop and unless one of the people involved in this chain of karma finally gets wise and says, not anymore, no more, I'm out of here. And therefore there is a Tibetan method also of dealing with karma in which the Tibetans say, and I again don't have the time to go in the full process, I'm just mentioning, because I mentioned four by now already, I'm mentioning that the Tibetans say that if you can operate a process of awareness in which to understand the lesson which that karma wants to bring to you and to learn that lesson realistically, not pro forma, but to learn it profoundly, then the usefulness of that karma disappears. Because if further on you are going to suffer for the acts of violence that you have done, but actually you have become non-violent from toes till the top of your head, and you are non-violent through and through, truly and forever, then automatically that, the rest of that violent karma becomes useless. And the divine consciousness would be the first one which would say, I'm, pain, I'm so happy that you have learned this lesson, let this karma go away. I swallow it, I annihilate it instantaneously, like Shiva swallowing the poison of the universe, I'm taking it instantaneously, because you don't need it anymore. This is a pain which is not needed. You have learned, you have learned the lesson, my child. And therefore, in this way the Tibetans say, you can also speculate this aspect. You can speculate the aspect of creating the understanding, which has to be an organic understanding, not an intellectual understanding. 
And if you remember, those of you who have heard me talking about this, there is a longer topic about this, but just to mention this, people who follow this path, they are usually tested again and again exactly in the same circumstances. For example, if you are guilty of murder, you can decide because you have a revolution in your heart that never again shall I kill anybody because it is wrong and wrong and I cry to God and I repent and I'm not going to do this again. And then the next day, some bastard is about to kill your child and you have a gun in your hand and you shoot him and you say, well, but uh, that's a very special situation. No, it's not a very special situation. It's just another bad excuse which you give to yourself to fall in the same pattern. Like the ones who follow this path, they are retested at the maximum of their potency in that moment. And if they dump that text, that test, I'm sorry, it means they were having a fake understanding, a superficial understanding, and then they still have to gather that karma because they didn't really learn. They half learned, but it's not good enough. But if the person is subjected to that test and they don't do it anymore, then it's obvious that they have learned the lesson and any other violent karma they may have from that moment on becomes redundant because what, is, what will it serve? I have learned I didn't need all those negative karmic events to teach me. I'm not that thick-headed. I learned quickly. And if I learned quickly, then I don't need all that karma which will teach me something which I have learned already. And therefore, there is the method of awareness and learning. And finally, the yogis of India and Patanjali, it's impossible that Patanjali shouldn't have been aware of that, especially because these are all related to Ajna Chakra. Patanjali must have known that the yogis from India and then the yogis from Tibet, but Tibet did not exist as such at the time of Patanjali, so the Indian yogis at that time, they had methods which they claim that those methods are able to destroy the karma, and in particular the negative karma. Such methods you learn throughout our yoga courses, and what you can know at this point is that such methods are related to Ajna Chakra. By tradition in yoga, some special method which activate Ajna Chakra in some ways contribute to destroying karma, it's true that those methods are difficult, they have to be practiced intensely, they have to be brought to masterliness. You may have many obstacles to deal with those methods, like feeling lazy and like not doing it, because your own fatality attracts you to your own trouble, instead of teaching you the ways of wisdom. But if you manage to go over all those obstacles, you may be able in yoga to practice techniques, methods of yoga which by tradition are famed for the fact that they can destroy the negative karma and all of them gravitate around this Ajna Chakra working with Ajna Chakra therefore Patanjali says do something actively do karma yoga do tapas do understanding do prayer do Techniques which burn karma, do one of those five things, but deal with the pain which is yet to come. And almost every person in this room and in this world still has some negative karma in their backpack. Nobody's karma is 100% pure because our lives are mixed up. 
We do good things and bad things in each of our lives, exception made when we become very spiritual and we want to become saintly and then we try to do only good things. Therefore, it is very, very probable that each and every one of you has some bad karma left in your backpack. Some of you a little and some of you overwhelmingly much. Remember, Patanjali says, you can deal with that. The point is not only in not reacting to the samskaras. Yes, that's the point. The samskaras will come, you'll fall down and break your leg, and instead of shutting up and enduring your broken leg because it's your karma, you are going to make life miserable for five people around you because you broke your leg. And you'll create more negative karma, which is not physical, it's true, unless one day you get so irritated on somebody, your brother or child or somebody who doesn't come and you tell them, bring me my tea, and you, know, you are sitting like a king in an armchair, and say, bring me my tea, bring me my food, and everybody is exasperated. Boy, he is such a pain. Since he has this broken leg, all the family is in agony. You are giving them mostly emotional pain and trouble. But one day you might even become physical because you are so frustrated and screwed up, you push one of them and they say, didn't I tell you, go and bring my tea. And you push them and they stumble over the chair and they fall down and they break their leg. And then you say, oh, sorry, well I, you know, it's like this is when you are in shit, you usually want to pull other people in your shit and then you end by doing negative karma, by doing negative actions which create more karma. Patanjali is not talking only about those two levels. Patanjali is talking also about the five approaches to yoga, and which I have already made here for you, in which he simply says you can destroy the karma of the past. There are different methods, some of them more primitive and rough, and some of them highly knowledgeable and sophisticated, which allow you to deal with the karma of the past, because else nobody would finish consuming the karma of the past in just this lifetime. And it would be like, okay, I'm sitting here and waiting for the karma. I'm not going to create any more karma, but I'm waiting for that one from the past to come and finish, and then I'll be over and done with all this uh, soap opera of life. No, this is a very passive attitude, and Patanjali says something else. And therefore, remember, Patanjali says, don't be a masochist, don't be a fatalist, people who say, ah, this is my fate. It's my fate never to have a good relationship. It's my fate not to be sexually satisfied. It's my fate to be alone. It's my fate to have pain. It's my fate to be ill. It's my fate to be weak. It's my... All this is nonsense. It's a complete nonsense from the standpoint of Patanjali. Patanjali says nobody is condemned to anything. The only exception being that some people are prone to some things. Yes, karma is pushing us in that direction because of the samskaras and the kleshas, the impurities. But Patanjali says, if you take a deep breath, you can stop it. You can stop this thing in, this, in its course. Sometimes when you have a disease or something, it feels like things are accumulating momentum, picking up speed, and it's like everything goes with more and more and more and more and more speed in the wrong direction. And then you say, my friend, suddenly he died. You know, and it's like everything went so quickly. In the last six months I knew that my friend was having cancer, and I tried to do this, but then this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and, this, and before I knew it, my friend was dead. 
It's like, this is karma. Karma is like wiping away your awareness. It's like making you act mechanically and later you will regret. I have experienced often in my life, in my earlier life, situations where I have been confronted with the suffering of other people around me and I cannot say that every time I have reacted perfectly to it. There were situations where I was not powerful and aware enough to take over the harnesses of the situation and to pull back and to say, ho, 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 this has a stop. This stops here. You know, like somebody should put a heel in the floor and say, break. No, it, this doesn't go any further than this. This requires a certain strength and lucidity and determination. And Patanjali says, you can do something about this. Remember, there is not even a single one of you here who will not be confronted with some degree of trouble in the future, emotional, physical, or others. It's inevitable, but the point is that you have to stand up to it, not just to go head forward into exception if you know how to go, if that for you is a method of purification or something, like it would be in all these methods with prayer and learning and others. I cannot insist this will require much more consideration than that, but this is a fundamental sutra, because after Patanjali has shown the whole chain, he gives us the wisdom, and the wisdom is, you don't need to suffer, you can stop it now, you don't need to continue this chain of suffering, because he expressed this Buddhist vision, his Vedantic vision that for the wise man everything is suffering. Again I'm saying, in a tantric view, not everything is suffering. But the suffering yet to come can be avoided and can be stopped. And that is fundamental. And in the next sutra, Patanjali starts a long explanation. I don't know if I will be able to go through all of it. We'll start it here which ends in his descri describing yoga. In case you did not forget, Patanjali in the chapter number 2 calls it sadhana pada and it's a chapter about sadhana, the practice. But he started very philosophically. He started with the impurities of the mind, how they produce karma, what karma produced, and now he tells us about the stopping of suffering and the others. And he still has to go a little bit to show us that all this chain of impurities, karma, suffering, can be actually corrected through a spiritual practice and that's what yoga is for him and then finally gladly he will start telling you about yoga the eight levels of yoga and what discovery he knows of that there is a method which helps you navigate through this ocean of existence and therefore he now, he now continues by trying to explain how, what is the relationship between the soul, the spirit, actually, the supreme self, and the evolution, and the imprisonment in samsara, that's a Buddhist term, he doesn't use that term, and the liberation, and what needs to be done. Here he is acting at a very subtle level, that's why the next sutras are quite spiritual, they are not very practical, they, take, they tell us a few general background things, because actually he is preparing, it's a step in his demonstration. He told us about karma and everything, now he tells us about the status 
of the spirit in this world and then he will come to propose yoga, to suggest yoga as a method of solving this existential dilemma. But here he therefore prepares a little bit things. The sutra number 17 says, the conjunction between the one who perceives and the object to be perceived is the cause of heya, which is a reference to that pain which is to be avoided, and it is understood here as the imprisonment. So he says the cause of this pain, which afflicts the whole world as Buddha has seen, is the conjunction between the one who perceives and the object to be perceived. The one who perceives is always Purusha in Vedantic yogic terminology. In the terminology of the Kashmir Shaivism, the one who perceives is always Shiva or the subject, the I, the actual subject. In yoga this would be called also Atma or Atman, the Supreme Self. And this Atma or Atman is not the same with the object. The object means also physical object, but it also means subtle objects. For example, you can identify with an emotion, sadness. Sadness is an object because it's an energy. It's a, an energy of manifestation which exists somewhere in the astral world. It's one of the many emotions of the astral world. If I am identifying with sadness, which I always do when I am sad, then automatically I feel sadness. I become sadness. If you remember, those of you who are here in the last year and heard me holding the lectures on the first chapter, in the first chapter it was said by Patanjali very clearly that the mind assumes the color and the shape, by this meaning the characteristics, of any object that it focuses upon, like a crystal which is put on a colored surface and it assumes the color of that surface. For example, if you take a transparent crystal and put it on a pink piece of paper, you can see a pinkish hue in the crystal, although the crystal is not pink in color. And in the same way, the mind becomes like the object upon which it superimposes, and the spirit goes together with the mind. And therefore, the point here is that Purusha, which is the spirit, should theoretically say, I am not pain. Spirit is not pain. Pain, depression, sadness, whatever, as well as objects, camera, mattress, this and that, I am not those. But unfortunately, the spirit is so ignorant that it, the spirit forgets this independence. Hey, I am just an actor, like Krishna says, you are Atman for God's sake, you are not Hamlet, you are an actor that plays Hamlet. Step a little bit back of yourself and realize you are not Hamlet. You are an actor which plays Hamlet tonight. And therefore, the point is that we never consider ourselves Atma. We consider ourselves the role, which is the object which we are. And that is why the problem is that the spirit identifies with the object. And simply Patanjali says, Ah, if the spirit would stay separate from things, the spirit would say, down there, there is pain. I am not that pain. My spirit is in bliss. I am bliss and consciousness without form. I am Shiva. I am Shiva, as Shankaracharya says in his famous poem. 
I am not pain, I am not the sense organs, I am not the elements, I am pure consciousness. Who can say that, and especially who can maintain that consciousness all day long, all the time? That is why our problem, as you know, since so many sources, and in, since, which has been said in so many ways, is precisely forgetfulness. We forget, and it is, this is the trap. It's like the spirit is always getting attached to roles, and it becomes those roles. And we forget all the time. And we live a life as Hamlet, and then only when we die we realize, actually, I was not Hamlet. Hamlet was just a mask, a costume, which I have put on, and it was not really me. Try to think only about the sexual identity, that you are feeling you are the person in the body where you live. The men feel that they are men, and the women, they feel that they are women. But you know at the level of Atman you are neither men nor women. So the very fact that you feel that you are a man or a woman is an illusion, ultimately. It's a very deep illusion, but it's an illusion, ultimately. Ah, it's an illusion which the Tantrics have learned to use. The Tantrics have said we can play with these illusions, and if we are men, let's play being men, and if we are women, let's play being women. But still at the level of the Supreme Self, man, woman, does not exist anymore. And that is why we refuse to separate from the role. How many of you men would refuse identifying yourself with being men? How many of you women would refuse identifying with being women? It's like all your life would be lost. It's like you would become something which you don't know if it's good or bad. It's like you would lose your very identity. That is why our fear is so deep that all the time the spirit identifies. It has to be anchored because this freedom of being everything and nothing is too much. It's frightening. It's like a void gap and we don't dare to go there. And that's why we are clinging to concrete details as we would be on a slippery floor and we are all the time searching for something to grab. And that something is like giving me the feeling that I am safe because I can cling to something. If I wouldn't be able to cling, I would be like in the complete floating in the vacuum, floating in a space where I have no fulcrum. And that is why we all the time try to find as fulcrum concrete things. And that's why the physical world is so difficult. Because in your dreams, you cannot cling to so many things because they are more fuzzy. But here in the physical world, we always cling. My body, my house, my name, my status my things, my sex, my everything, my identity, and we, it's so difficult to give up because if we wouldn't have this, it sounds like we would go crazy. It sounds like we would float in an ocean of indetermination, of undetermination, and it's like nothing would make sense too much. And that is why, that is the reason for which actually, philosophically speaking, or at the ultimate level, the cause is this association of Purusha, the transcendent spirit, the Shiva nature, the Buddha nature, which is associating itself with things from samsara, from maya, from the manifestation, from the realm of Shakti, and clings to them because those seem to be, anything seems to be more reliable than spirit. Because spirit is beyond space, beyond time, and it's exactly like Jesus says, look at the Son of Man, I have no place to put my head down, I'm like the wind, the wind is coming and you don't know where it's coming from, it's going and you don't know where it's going from, and he says, it's the same with me, 
He accepted this freedom that I am spirit. Try to catch me in the palm of your hand like the air. You cannot catch me. I don't belong to anyone and I belong to all at the same time because I am omnipresent. I am the spirit. People cannot live with this usually. Only people who have learned to be detached. That's why in India, in Tibet, many orders of sadhus and others, they have this rule that they should be wandering mendicants. The sadhus of India, if they would be correct, most of them have this rule that they should not stay in a place more than three days. They are not allowed to spend more than three days in a place. Why? Because as soon as you spend more than three days, you start feeling this is my place. No, it isn't. It's just another illusion. So if you just be going like a hobo, this is the madman from the tarot cards. In the tarot cards, the madman is the universe, is the final, is the last of the great arcana from tarot, because it's like the completely realized blossom human being, he's like Jesus, has become a madman, a hobo, a vagabond. It's like the spirit. Spirit is not, he doesn't belong anywhere, it is everywhere. But this is a freedom which you see we are organically afraid. We are organically afraid to let go. And if we cannot attach to something physical, at least we attach to emotions. I am a pessimist. I am an optimist. I am intelligent. I am not that intelligent. I am melancholic. I am choleric. I am this. I am that. We all the time attach to things because they give us a feeling of safety. Even an emotional temperament gives me more safety than the great void of the spirit which lays like an ocean without name and form, without limits, without past, present and future, and I cannot be, it's afraid. It's like I feel I'm going crazy. It's like Arjuna, when he saw Krishna being as the universe, he said, I'm afraid, I feel I'm going crazy. Stop this vision, because I'm losing it. I'm unable to bear this vision. Why? It's the vision, it's the vision he was admiring. Arjuna knew that that was the Samadhi, that that was the cosmic consciousness. And yet, even Arjuna was so attached to the things that he had to do, and to the things that he was, that he could not just let go and become independent spirit suddenly, in one go. And that is why many of you who do profound yoga, you know that there are some levels of fear to surpass in us when we let go, when you are about to enter in Samadhi, for some people, the first reaction is fear. Because it's like, I feel that I'm going to lose myself. I'm not going to lose myself. I'm going to find myself, ultimately. But that, what I find, is not what I imagined I would find. Because I'm not trying to find something limited and ephemeral and something solid and ankylosed and frozen in form and name. I'm going to find something which is infinite and which is beyond space and time. And therefore, here the spirit wants to get attached to the matter because the spirit feels it's in a slippery world and it has to, at to attach to something, at least that we are beings belonging to this solar system. No, we are not even belonging to this solar system. The spirit is way beyond the solar system and galaxies and this. We are free altogether, free in space and free in time. But this is so difficult to accept because it makes us feel lost. And that is why it is the natural tendency of the spirit to be attached, to attach itself to anything. When you are in the physical world, 
you attach yourself to your physical body, to the physical environment in which you are. When you are in the astral world between two lives, you attach yourself to your emotions and dreams and whatever you have there, but you never can abandon those things. You have to be attached to something of some sort. Well, the Patanjali says, that's how the suffering starts. So basically what Patanjali seems to suggest is, if you could separate Purusha from the object, from Prakriti, basically, because the object is Prakriti, is nature, is Samsara, is Maya, then you would enjoy the complete freedom. That's the idea in Yoga Sutra in general. Yoga Sutra, as you are going to see, especially in chapter 4, it defines the spiritual realization as a state of breaking away from the universe. That's why Yoga Sutra belongs to the Vedantic, separate, ascetic, negative types of yoga, in which freedom is defined like screw manifestation. We want to go in pure spirit, in Nirvana or Purusha. It is a method which is separating, splitting. Does Yoga Sutra try to do something about the manifestation, such as change the manifestation, this world of samsara? No. Your spirit is guilty because it identifies with various levels of this manifestation, physical, astral, or causal. And when you will stop identifying with the physical ones, you will be free from the physical world. And when you will stop identifying with the astral ones, you will be free from the astral world. And when finally you will stop identifying with the causal ones, you will be free from the causal world, and then you will be completely free. In the fourth chapter, Patanjali calls this liberation Kaivalya. Kaivalya in Sanskrit means isolation, insulation, like you are separate. You are on an island and nobody touches you. You are in pure nirvana, you are in pure bliss, and nothing touches you. You are in Purusha, you are in the Shiva nature. I am saying it time and again. This vision is not the vision of the Tantric tradition. While Patanjali is true, because he says the association of Purusha with the object produces pain. That's true. But in Tantra, they would add the following word. They would say the unconscious and involuntary association of Purusha with the world, with the object, produces suffering. Because the Tantrics <coughs> of various schools, but the Tantrics who admit the levels of Baba Samadhi, Sahaja Samadhi, the open eye Samadhi, they accept that there exists a level of existence in which this world can be sanctified, transformed, spiritualized, sublime, brought along so that we can have heaven on earth, we can bring the kingdom of heaven on earth as Patanjali, so, I'm sorry, as uh, Sri Aurobindo so beautifully preached. And therefore the tantric tradition goes a step further and it says it's true that in the beginning the spirit is unconsciously, involuntarily, mechanically attached to things and it endures slavery because if I tie myself to a table, to a table, to a simple desk, if I tie myself with a rope to that desk, then I'm not free because the desk 
holds me with the very rope with which I tied myself to it. Therefore my spirit is not free. And that's why indeed the cause, the psychological cause of slavery is the fact that I am attaching to things. That's why detachment is so important, as you all know. But on the other hand, Tantra says, the solution is not just to detach yourself, to cut the rope and turn the back and say, I'm not attached anymore, I'm out of here. What about the table? What about everybody else? Therefore, Tantra says, first you cut the rope to prove to yourself that you can be free, because it might be, it's not an illusion, and then you come and tie yourself back to the table, but this time you are not ignorant, you are knowledgeable, and you say, now I can consciously and deliberately assume to be present in this world, but not like a slave or like a prisoner, but as the king of this world, as a ruler, as Shiva, as the Shiva consciousness. So basically, this is, as some of you know, the symbol of the dance of Shiva. That's why Shiva is dancing, because the whole universe is the dance of spirit, when you can see it from that standpoint. But if not, look what Patanjali was saying in the Sutra number 15. For the, in the eyes of one who has discrimination, all is painful because of pains due to change, acute suffering, blah, 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 blah. All is pain, it's a very pessimistic view upon the world, which is an escapistic view. Run out of here because all is pain in this world. Tantra says, no, everything is a dance, Shiva dancing, it's a bliss, it's a feast, it's the cosmic party. But if you are Shiva, if you are ignorant, then Kali is dancing on you and crushing you mercilessly and everything is pain. But if you are as Shiva, then everything becomes a dance where you dance and everything becomes bliss in action. That is why Patanjali will suggest, unfortunately, only the first half of the solution. Patanjali says, uh, everything is pain because Purusha gets attached to the object and therefore cut the bloody ties, separate from the object and go in Kaivalya, be isolated, be in pristine isolation in Nirvana, in pure spirit, and forget about this world of misery where things are happening the way they are happening. While theoretically speaking he is right, his solution is inferior to the tantric solution. Uh, this should be understood again and again. The solution of the symbol of the original Buddhism, of the Vedantic Yoga, of Vedanta, of the Yoga of Patanjali and other such disciplines, goes only halfway, perhaps because they believe that when you will reach there, it will be up to you to come back, to decide, it's kind of, that's the chapter 2 of the book, and you will read about it when you will reach there. There is no need to bother you now, telling you, giving you an outline of what's in the chapter 2 already. But nevertheless, the Tibetan Buddhism with its concept of Bodhisattva, as well as the tantric forms of yoga from India, they have done exactly that and they have taken together both chapter 1 and chapter 2. When you go up the hill towards Nirvana and when you go over the top to come back to samsara and to exert compassion, loving kindness and this divine transformative power of the spirit. And now he is giving us a few explanations about this famous perceivable object. He says, 
Purusha is attached to what he calls the object. By, by the object he means physical objects, astral objects, causal objects, everything. Just to find the fulcrum somewhere in one of those worlds. And now he defines a little bit about the object. He says, the perceivable, sutra number 18, the perceivable object has the properties of light, activity and stability. It is of the nature of the five elements and sense organs and has experience and liberation as its objectives. Basically here Patanjali gives a philosophical, technical between the lines, it's beautiful, description of the manifestation. He says the object is either this or this or this, or this or this or this, and it has this and this characteristics. Let's follow again what he says. He says the perceivable object has the properties of, first list, light, activity, stability. These are not used with the original uh, words, like light is used, prakasha, and so on. But the commentators of Yoga Sutra have immediately understood that Patanjali talks about sattva, rajas, and tamas. Exception made those of you who are in the first month of yoga, everybody here should know by now what these three are. These are the names of the three gunas, the famous gunas. Lightness is sattva, activity is rajas, and stability is tamas. Therefore, he says, objects have the properties of sattva, rajas, tamas, because everything in this universe is made of a mixture of sattva, rajasic and tamasic qualities, and then he says, it is of the nature of the five elements and sense organs, yes, that's what they say, the universe is made out of the five elements, so everything in this universe, the bodies, the paradises and hells, the astral worlds, the causal things, objects, everything is made of a mixture of the five elements at different levels, so he says, these objects can be considered that they are either a mixture of gunas or a mixture of the five elements and that they have experience and liberation as its objective. Here he is reminding us the great ideas that life, samsara, maya, nirvana, this world of manifestation has experience and liberation as its objectives. What is the purpose of this world? experience and liberation. First you have to experience, which means you have to evolve. You have to go through lives as an atom, as a mineral, as a crystal, as a plant, vegetable life, simple animal life, complex animal life, mammal, human, and even superhuman in the later stages. And what do you do during all these aeons and aeons of life after life, after life in all the kingdoms of nature. You accumulate experience. You learn what it is to be an atom, what it is to be a crystal, what it is to be a tree, what it is to be an amoeba, what it is to be a frog and a chimp, what it is to be a human being, man, woman, rich, poor, big, small, good, bad, virtues, sinner, everything. And in case you don't finish your evolution now, in this life, at this stage, you may get to experience even some superhuman stages of life, such as you can become a deity, a superhuman entity, a deva, a deity. And therefore, what is the result of all these circulation through samsara? 
experience. The first thing is experience, or in other terms, evolution. So Patanjali reminds that all these, may the five elements, may the three gunas, all these aggregate, which we call the manifestation, the manifested world, has as purposes experience slash evolution, and the second is liberation. When you get enough experience, then suddenly you start thinking, hey, would I be free? Would I turn back home? Would I see my maker? Would I finally make it back to pure consciousness? Could I reach nirvana? Could I liberate myself? Could I become one with Shiva? Could I become the pure spirit, the Buddha nature of this universe? Yes. And then this is liberation. So the purpose is, again, very fuzzily defined, experience and liberation. So, here he gave us a simplified thing that you can consider samsara, the world, from the standpoint of three gunas or five elements, and all in all, it's just a game of evolution and liberation. So, he will continue. He gives one more technical sutra, which, as far as I have seen in many authors and commentators, leaves them flabbergasted because they don't look at some aspects. There are Sanskrit names, I will read them, don't worry about Sanskrit names. It says Vishesha and Avishesha, which means specific and unspecific, Lingamatra and Alinga, which means with form and without form, differentiated and undifferentiated as well means, are the stages of the Gunas. He just said, this the object, this thing with which the spirit identifies, which means anything from the world, anything, the body and different things, emotions, this object, samsara, ultimately, this object is made of the three gunas of the five elements and it's a game of experience and liberation. And now he says, those three gunas, he turns back to the gunas, he starts analyzing deeper, he takes one of those. Unfortunately, he will not analyze according to the five elements, because he actually did it already when he spoke about the kleshas. Secretly, the five kleshas were related with the five elements. So now he feels the need to go a little bit in depth about the structure of the universe. And he says, this, this, the gunas have the stages of specific, unspecific, differentiated and undifferentiated. He gives four stages. Is this important? Not really. It is important because it teaches us something in Tantric Yoga, because it teaches us about the bodies and the levels of the universe and how to detach ourselves gradually. Else this Sutra, for somebody who aims at a complete rupture, it's like redundant. It's a bit, yeah, okay, let's go to the next sutra, maybe we find something practical. Actually, there is something practical here. What Patanjali tries to say, for those of you who love the precision and the clarification of things, is that Patanjali says the universe is made of the three gunas in the previous sutra, and here he says those gunas have different levels of of manifestation. They have different levels of subtlety, of subtleness, which means they can manifest into a very gross way, into a subtle way, and so on. He uses four levels. The first and the second, he puts them together, and he says specific and unspecific. Vishesha and avishesha. What he means by it is specific, is physical, 
the physical reality where everything is specific. A pillow is a pillow, but not in the astral world. In the astral world, objects and gunas are avishesha, unspecific. A pillow can turn into a dog in your dreams. Nothing is what it seems to be. That is why in the, in the astral, the, the gunas and everything, the whole manifestation manifests in a polymorphous way, in a way which is like here, everything to be, seems to be frozen in one form. Nobody expects that this wooden bed will transform into a black dog. In your dreams, it can. That's why here, in the physical world, it's specific. And in the astral world, which is the world of your dreams, it is unspecific. And then, he goes on, you got the point, the next two refer to the higher levels. The one which he calls Linga Matra, and which is usually translated as differentiated, or with form, because Linga, in Sanskrit word, means not only the Shiva Linga, the phallic symbol, but originally it means a sign or a symbol. And therefore, it's symbolic Linga Matra, having the form of Linga, having the quality of Linga, the measure of Linga, which means a symbol. So he means symbolic, archetypal, something which is based on something very subtle such as the symbols. That's nothing else but the causal world. So he says the, the gunas are manifested physically, that's differentiated, or uh, fixed as we said here, specific, astral, unspecific, linga matra, symbolic at the level of the causal world, and the final one is called simply alinga, not alinga matra, but simply alinga, which means not even symbol is there, that being an uh, expression of the highest level, which is the level of parashakti, the level of the ultimate shakti, which is above the causal world. So, as you all know, I wanted to make a drawing of this, but most of you should have this in your mind from our yoga courses. The universe is drawn, imagine, as this egg shape made of seven layers, of seven forms of energy. And the first two represent the physical gross world. The next two represent the intermediary astral subtle world. The next two, number five and six, represent the causal world, the very spiritual part. And number seven, the very top of the egg, represents Shiva Shakti, the union between void and energy, the highest level, the level of the pure spirit of the, as Christian Gnosticism calls it, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the energy of the ultimate, the level of the ultimate energy of the divine. So basically what Patanjali says is that according to the how much manifested these things are, the gunas as well as the elements actually are manifested physically or astrally or causally or if not they exist at the level of the alinga beyond symbols, even at the level of the pure energy of God in the level of pure shakti beyond gunas, beyond time and space only as original principles of manifestation. What is the purpose of this? Well, we can meditate on a lot of applications. For example, if we talk about gunas, 
then we can say my gunas are, for example, I'm having some tamas guma guna. Where is this tamas guna? Tamas guna I have in my body? Yes, because I'm heavy bodily and I tend to be physically heavy. But do I have tamas guna in my mind? No, my mind is very active and it is full of ideas and it is very dynamic. Okay, I'm not tamas guna at the level of my astral body. Maybe at the level of my astral body I'm actually rajas guna because I seem to be a mentally active type of person. What about at the causal level where most people don't have a clue as to what they are at the causal level except if they look at their karma. Where is my karma going? What kind of destiny do I have? What is, ah, okay, I'm a person who goes into wisdom, which means my causal karma is maybe sattvic. I'm a sattvic person, lovely, from a causal standpoint. As about identifying alinga, alinga is like the seed of everything, you can't see it. That's why he just mentioned that the gunas, as well as the elements, can be identified externally, physically, manifested, differentiated, subtle, where they are starting to merge together, like in the world of the dreams and it's another level, causal, which is very, very seldom accessible to mortals, and finally, that there is the root of everything in the pure energy. This is the explanation of this difficult sutra, which truly does not belong here so much, because then Patanjali should have gone further along this line and done some applications. But actually Patanjali mysteriously mentions some applications of this, but in the third chapter when he speaks about mental discipline and other things. That's why perhaps he just throws this sutra allusively, like to show that there are levels, that manifestation is not just black and white. There are levels of subtlety, levels of refinement in the manifestation, and that the manifestation can be restored gradually from physical to astral, from astral to causal, from causal to divine, to the ultimate, to the spiritual nature. And let us continue. A little bit just to finish these ideas, because I hope I can manage to get to the next idea and finish with this today. The one who perceives, says Sutra number 20, the one who perceives is pure consciousness only, but in spite of his purity, he perceives through the mental concept. Which means, between the perceiver is Purusha, Atman, the Supreme Self, the Buddha nature, the plane number seven, which is beyond even the causal world, and that is our true nature. But the spirit does not have instruments of perception. Even the five senses, they need to be reflected in the mind. The mind processes the impulse from the five senses, exactly as in the movie The Matrix said that actually what are the senses? Electricity which comes to your brain, and your brain processes the electricity which comes from those senses. And therefore if you give the correct signals to your brain, your brain can believe that you are sitting here in the yoga hall, while actually you are lying down in a cylinder somewhere and you are imprinted in the matrix. So this uh, statement simply says uh, something else. The spirit cannot perceive directly. And that's why the spirit to relate to manifestation 
it needs an interface. That interface, which is the level number six of the universe, between seven and the lower five, is the mind, illustrated by Ajna Chakra. The first five chakras are related to the five elements, and they represent the universe. And then there is the mind, which is the link between spirit and universe. The spirit would not be able to perceive the universe without the mind. The mind is the link, and he basically tells us by which mechanism the spirit, which should be isolated, pristine, in his view, this Purusha, by which mechanism it relates to the object. Well, it relates to our good old friend, the mind. The mind is the link which creates the buffer between the two. So, that is why in many spiritualities their purpose was to eliminate the mind. Even Patanjali, in the beginning of his Yoga Sutra, he says, Yoga is the arresting of the movements of the mind. What we want to do is to get this bloody mind to shut up for five minutes so that you can see, you can be pure spirit. That's exactly what the Zen masters of Japan speak about the accomplishment in Zen. The accomplishment in Zen is Satori. And Satori means a direct vision. Don't think, just see. When we watch the sunset, we say, what a beautiful sunset. You have spoiled it already, you have killed it, because you already spoke about it. You are not supposed to speak, your mind has to shut up. Your mind has to be so enraptured that it's like... And somebody says, do you like the sunset? Oh, boy. Go somewhere else, man. You spoiled it, no? The whole beauty was in that, it was in that awe, that I was in awe, I was speechless, I was without words, and now you come and put words on it. The mind starts, taka, 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 taka. It's kind of, you are killing the whole fun of it. That's why yoga is exactly, he doesn't say you should get stupid. He says you should get the mind translucent, that the mind should become transparent and not interfere. On one hand you have the object, and on one hand you have the subject, the spirit. Let the, the object hit the subject unimpeded, not with the buffer of the mind, which all the time says, Spirit, I am going to tell you what you are seeing, what you are experiencing through the five senses. No, thank you, no definitions, please. I just want to be in pure perception of reality. Therefore, this has applications in the moment when he describes, that's why the Yoga Sutra and so many others are based on this concept of appeasing the mind. That if you manage to bring the mind to peace for five minutes, you may have a clear vision of reality. If the mind is there, the mind will say, oh, I don't like this. Oh, it's going to hurt. Oh, I have experienced this yesterday and it was a disaster. Oh, this. Oh, that. The mind is always giving you attraction and repulsion and the kleshas generally, right? Ignorance, ego, attraction, repulsion, fear of death. But especially the, the couple attraction and re, repelling, rejection. And that is why yeah, the mind is in a certain way an obstacle, although in the daily life it is such a powerful instrument. And we will stop here, not manage to go to the next of the ideas. So, we have reached to the Sutra number 20, and I will continue a little bit with these things, and then getting into some more practical things as he defines them.
in the following sutra.